If you have a Bible with you this morning, I would ask for you to open it to the book of Revelation. We will be in the fifth chapter in just one moment. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you should be able to find one in the pew in front of you, and Revelation 5 will be found all the way at the back, uh, page 1030 of that ESV Bible. There should be no doubt that Christmas is the American holiday. Americans obsess over Christmas for well over a month. Some unfortunate folks for well over two months. They're sick. We should pray for them, but we don't have time this morning. We spend more money during that holiday than we do any other time of the year. Christmas has its own music, it has its own sweaters, it has its own trees, it has its own cookies, and it has its own movies. Easter has none of these things. Yet, there is no doubt that if Christmas is the American holiday... Easter or Resurrection Sunday is the Christian day of celebration. It was always like this from the time that Christ first got out of the tomb. It was like this on the next Sunday and the next Sunday after that. From the very beginning, Christians have set aside Sunday to witness to and to worship the risen Lord. After all, we don't gather on Saturdays to worship God. We gather on Sundays to worship God. Every Sunday that we get together is a microcosm of this day. It is a mini celebration of the fact that Jesus has gotten up out of the grave, that he is risen, and he is risen indeed. But what is so special about this resurrection, and more importantly, about this Jesus who happens to be at the center of it? Is this Jesus, for all of his publicity, honestly worth arranging this day around? worth arranging the next Sunday around, worth arranging an entire week around, or month, or year, or the rest of your life? Is Jesus truly worthy of the honor and respect and glory that we ascribe to him? Such a question isn't hypothetical, especially in the book of Revelation as we open to it this morning. It was true for them. This was a real question. One chapter over from what we will read when we hear of the opening of the fifth seal, John will say he will see souls under the altar that have been killed for the word of God and their testimony of Jesus. He will say that they are crying out for God's vengeance to be paid. We hear those as distant voices, but for the people who probably read this letter the first time through, they would say, I know that voice. That's the voice of my son, of my sister, of my husband. They heard their families, they heard their loved ones echoing with those voices. No doubt, they had to come to a quick conclusion as to whether Jesus was worth that sacrifice. And not only that, but being a discriminated religious minority in the Roman Empire, they were going to experience sporadic and random times of persecution and possibly even death themselves. And so while they might remember those who had died previously, they had to answer this question for themselves. Was Jesus to be worth it? Indeed, even if this does not reach down to us today here in America or here in Bay City, it is clear that it reaches our brothers and sisters in China and in Chile and in Chad. Is Jesus, worth what we say about him? Is he worth your life, your devotion? We ought to find comfort in the fact that we are not the first to ask this question. John, in Revelation 4, the chapter before this, 
has a vision of God upon his throne. This vision speaks to us of God's incomparable power, beauty, might, majesty, and glory. Indeed, what Isaiah says with the simple sentence, I am the Lord and there is no other besides me, there is no God. What he says with that sentence, John shows us with symbols and pictures. This God and this God alone is mighty in majesty, power, knowledge, might, wisdom, glory, and authority. Chapter 5 then asks, answers and responds to the question that we ourselves have been asking. Given that God, given the promises that we have throughout Scripture, given everything that we know, is Jesus worthy? Is he worthy of our admiration? Is he worthy of our time? Is he worthy of our possessions, of our desires, of our praise, of our worship, of our lives? This is not just the question of chapter 5, although it is clearly the central question of chapter 5. It is the question of all of the book of Revelation. More than that, it is the question of the entirety of the New Testament and of the Bible and of history. Who is worthy? Let us go to the word and read Revelation chapter 5. We'll begin reading in verse 1. Then I saw the right hand of him who was seated on the throne and a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of our God. 
The text breaks up pretty nicely into three parts. The question of who is worthy. The question is simply who is worthy. Our scene opens with this powerful and majestic God holding in his right hand a scroll with seven seals, perfectly sealed. There is some speculation as to what the scroll is. There are many people who think that it is the rest of the future of the world and the history that we have before us in the book of Revelation. Some people think that it is scripture as a general or maybe a specific part of scripture. I think that it's best to see this as simply God's will for humanity. What are his desires for creation and the world? What are the fulfillments of his promises? The question that comes to the forefront of this is simple. Will his promises hold true? If it's not opened and God's will is not seen through, will his promises actually come to be? Well, the promise to Abraham that he was to be a mighty nation and to be a blessing to all of the nations on the earth come to pass? Would his blessings to David of an eternal kingdom come to pass? Would his blessings to the nation of Israel and indeed to us in Jeremiah 29? For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Will these things be true? If God's will cannot be done, if God's will will not be seen to be rolled out in the world, can his promises ever be true? Will the kingdom he promised ever come? Will God's plans for your good and peace actually arrive? And moreover, if they are to come true, who is mighty enough to make them true? Moses gave people the law, but he was not good enough to take them into the promised land. David gave, gave people a kingdom, but he was not holy enough to build a temple. Elijah gave people signs of power, but those were not enough to leave lasting change. Each of the heroes of Scripture from first to last, through the Old Testament, had a role to play in making these promises come true. Yet, by the time John writes this, the people do not have the promised land. The temple has been raised and burned to the ground again. And the people are scattered to the wind. After all, who is worthy of accomplishing God's will on earth? Who's holy enough to enter his presence? Who's strong enough to command his armies? Who's wise enough to determine his will? The answer that comes back to us again and again is no one. Psalm 15 says this, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly, does what is right, and speaks truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue, and does not do evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put money out at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Who is able to do these things? Paul and the psalmist come back time and time again. No one. And herein lies the rub. We 
love to think that good is just going to triumph. That for some reason, good just kind of wins out. Why is that? What precisely is it that keeps despotic tyrants at bay? What is it that keeps evil schemers and wicked plans from coming to reality? If it is not the merciful, gracious, generous will of God, and what if such will could never be seen to be done? What if God's plans were frustrated because there was no one who could make them come true? What if God's will would come to nothing because no one was strong enough, good enough, holy enough, or wise enough? What if we only had despair? Scripture speaks of this despair, of when hope is dragged away from the people of God. Jeremiah writes in the book of Lamentations, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He has turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent his bow and sent, set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become a laughingstock of all the peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel. He made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. What Jeremiah writes, John feels. There is a reason why John weeps greatly and loudly. It isn't because he really wants to know what's written in the scroll. It's because he sees before him despair. If God's will cannot be done, then we are hopelessly lost. There is no meaning in the world. There is no purpose to anything. Perhaps we don't despair because we don't think enough about it. Because the worthlessness of this life would simply engulf us. It would surround us, piling burdens upon us, suffocating out all of our hope and peace and comfort. John's tears are not misplaced. They are the only right response. Not having the presence of the Lord and his grace and his will being worked out in the world, there would be only despair, weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. But all is not lost. For there is an answer. That answer is simply that Jesus is worthy. The elder shows John that he has no reason to weep. Behold, Jesus stands there. 
God has not just made promises to the world. He has not just spoken of the good that he will do, but he has spoken of the servant through which he will act to bring that good about. He has spoken of the man through whom these promises would be fulfilled. He is no less than the Lion of Judah and the Root of David. Who then is this Jesus? He is first both the Lion and the Lamb. He is the Lion, for he has conquered over the world. He is the Lamb, for he gives his life as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. And when we speak of lion and lamb, typically what we do is we vision Jesus as a lamb when he first comes. In his first advent, when we speak of Christmas, the first advent, the first coming of the word of God, we say, this is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Because he's meek, because he's mild, because he lays his life down. And typically we speak of him being a lion when he returns because he will roar like a warrior. You can look back Revelation 19 to see a picture of this. But we need to realize here that the picture is not of two subsequent comings of Jesus, that he has come once as a lamb and he will come again as a lion, but the picture is of him being both a lion who conquers and a lamb who is slaughtered at the same time. He is the conquering lion specifically because he was willing to lay down his life as a slaughtered lamb. He conquers the world by the very willingness he has to lay down his life to accomplish the will of God. After all, even as he stands clearly alive in the resurrection, the entire point of a resurrection is to point at the fact that he had died. This, by the way, is exactly how the rest of the book of Revelation pictures the people of Jesus conquering the world. They don't conquer it by might, They don't conquer it through militaries. They don't conquer it with sword and shield or horses and chariots. They conquer it by loving Jesus more than they love the world. He is both lion and lamb, but he is also both God and man. John here pictures his humanity through these sort of genealogical notes. He says that he is the lion of Judah. As Judah, the son of Israel, who is Jacob, has foretold of him in Genesis chapter 49 that he will have a child who will rule the nations. Israel says there, Judah is a lion's cub from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This was the promise that came to Judah. We might think that Judah's long son, David, would be the one to whom this was fulfilled in. But David has a further promise made to him. He is not the one who will have the scepter before him forever. David in 2 Samuel has it prophesied of him. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Jesus is the rightful heir of both of these promises. He is the son of Judah. He is the son of David. He is fully human. And by that humanity, he makes a way for us to be reconciled to God. But John makes it clear that while his humanity is noted through these genealogical notes, his divinity is made through numerical notes. 
We tend to see numbers as quantitative. After all, they're numbers, they're quantities. So when we read seven here, seven eyes, seven spirits, seven horns, we tend to think of seven simply as the thing that comes after six when you're counting stuff up. It's interesting that John would picture this lamb this way. If you go back and read through Leviticus, it is clear that the lambs that were offered, that were given to the Lord as sacrifice, had to be without spot or blemish. They had to be perfect in all their ways. Having a lamb that was odd or deformed was never going to be acceptable before God. I dare say that three eyes would make a lamb deformed. Seven is a bit much. When we hear a number, we think of quantity, but John thinks of quality. When he says seven, he's not thinking of a number that comes after six. He is thinking of perfection, of complete and unmissing perfection. When the lamb has seven eyes, it means that he has all sight. He is perfect. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. He knows all things. He sees all things. He takes in all things. He has seven eyes, for he knows the seven spirits of God. This means that he knows the true, one, Holy Spirit of God. It is the perfect and holy and authoritative spirit who is one in number, but seven in perfection. The seven horns themselves speak of his authority and his power. And we find this weird. We don't speak of horns this way. But horns in the ancient world were signs of power and authority. All of this is reminiscent of chapter 4, where God Almighty, who sits on the throne, is the one who has the perfection of power and sight and might and authority. And John is telling us clearly, although through symbols, but he is telling us clearly that this Jesus is related directly to this God. But you ought to notice something different as well, that the symbols we would like to say to John, are somewhat mismatched. We think that the conquering should go with the role of divinity, and the sacrifice should go with the role of humanity, so that when he talks about conquering, that should come alongside the notes that Jesus is indeed divine. And when it talks about his being sacrificed, that should come along with the notes of him being, well, human. But we get it mixed up. The lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David, he is the one who has conquered. And it is the lamb that has been slaughtered that stands before there that is the sign of God's infinite presence with Jesus. I think it is simply to make the case that Jesus is both God and man inseparably. It is not as though the human nature does one thing and the divine nature does another, but in the person of Jesus Christ they act together. And what has he acted to do? We've talked about what Jesus is. Let's speak about what he has done in a word He reverses the curse. First, we read that he has redeemed people of every tribe, nation, people, and language. This is fairly easy to recall both from Scripture and from our everyday experience, a knowledge of the fact that there is always warring and factions between people of different cultures, of different nationalities, different principalities. Violence and strife are common among human people especially those people who view others as different. And Jesus has bound them all together as one. From the very beginning of the curse, we see violence being portrayed out. Cain slaughters his brother Abel, and Cain's son, Lamech, also murders somebody. By the time we get to just the sixth chapter of Genesis, blood is so filling the earth, violence is so filling the earth. 
that God decides to wipe it out with water. The flood does not end that violence and that strife. Jesus does. He calls all these people together into one kingdom. He has redeemed people of every tribe and he has ransomed them from their sin. Our sin demands justice. We are due to die, to suffer punishment and banishment from the good of God and from the good of his kingdom. We fight against God's kingdom, against God's rule, against the things that God calls good and even against the very nature of God himself. For such treason, death is the penalty. But Jesus, praise God, dies for us. He lays down his life to die the death that we should have died so that we might have the life that he has rightfully earned. God looked at Adam and Eve and said, if you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. There is a punishment to be handed out. Jesus has paid that for us. He has ransomed us from our sin. Thirdly, while he redeems us, he ransoms us, he finally returns us to God. The punishment for Adam and Eve was expulsion from the garden. God put a cherubim at the exit to that garden with a whirling, flaming sword to destroy anyone who would dare try to come back into his presence. That particularly is emboldened onto the curtain that separated out the rest of the temple from the Holy of Holies where God's presence would be felt. As a warning, remember the cherubim that I put at the Garden of Eden. Those who enter into this holy place without my authority will be put to death. We cannot go in to see God. We cannot be near him. Yet as Jesus dies, the, temple of the, the, the curtain of the temple is torn in two, making a way for us to enter into the very presence of God. Here John says that you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. We get to be with him. We get to dwell with him. He is our God. We are his people. He redeems, he ransoms, and he returns us so that we might rejoice. Adam and Eve dwelled in bliss in the garden, ruling over the earth, doing the things that God had set forward for them to do. Here we are called priests to our God. The service that we render to God is not to be bleak or boring or backbreaking, but a service of joy and gladness. As the psalmist says, one day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. All the pleasures of the earth, everything you enjoy, that you are worried about missing in heaven, if you are worried about those things, all of those are diluted and watered down pleasures that you will experience in full standing before God and serving him forever. By virtue of these things, Revelation declares he is worthy to walk up to God Almighty, to take that scroll and open it, for he has undone the evil of the world. He has made the promises of God come true. He has made a way for God to bless his people even while they were sinners. He has made a way for God to be our God and for us to be his people. As Paul says in Romans 5.17, If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Or as the old hymn says, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. So notice, John weeps in despair 
because no one is found worthy. We find one who is worthy precisely because he brings an end to despair. Adam and Eve were meant to serve God, to dwell with God, and to rule with God. Jesus provides redemption for his people, and in doing so, brings this intention to perfection. Adam's descendants will indeed serve God. Those who believe in Christ will dwell with God and rule with God because of the true and better Adam, Jesus Christ. What then is the response? The response is simply to worship the one who is worthy. An absolutely amazing thing happens in verse 8, and it continues throughout the rest of the chapter. The lamb is worshipped. God doesn't do well with idolatry. Every sin in the end is a picture of idolatry and is due a death. Every sin is in some way, shape, or form a treasuring or loving something more than God and his command. It is an attempt to make a God out of the thing that you worship. The first command is not just the first in number, but it is the first in importance. You shall have no other gods before me, or expressed differently in Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. In the Old Testament, we find God killing people for simply touching the ark to keep it from falling in the mud where his presence was to be. For bringing before him unauthorized fire. For grumbling and complaining. God doesn't mess around. And yet before his throne, the four living creatures, which are representative of all of creation, the 24 elders, which are representative of not only the 12 tribes of Israel, but the 12 apostles themselves, and a myriad and myriads of angels take their eyes off of the throne of God and put it on the Lamb. And they say almost literally the same things about the Lamb and what he is worthy of as they have said about God. Back in chapter 4 and verse 8, it says, the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say. They never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And then in the very next chapter, we have them turning from him to worship the Lamb. I get a little riled up when speaking with heretics. Not heretics, the way some people today use the word where we disagree on minor issues, but good old-fashioned heretics, people who want to deny the divinity and the glory of Jesus Christ or want to deny the Trinity. I remember sitting down with Jehovah's Witnesses once and, and saying, open to Revelation 5 and explain this to me. You who don't want Jesus to be God himself, who, who, who want to make Jesus out to be some sort of glorified and exalted creature, you tell me what is going on here. They, they're literally not worshiping God anymore, and then they turn and they worship this creature. They're worshiping a lamb. How do you explain that? He said, Oh, well, I mean, you're just paying homage and respects and such. Homage? They're paying respects to the Lamb in front of God Almighty? 
Listen, friends, when the Lord returns with glorious light and revelation as bright as the midday sun from the east is to the west, and the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul and all of the heroes of the faith stand around you, and you look at Jesus and then you say, oh, that's Peter. Hey, Peter, what's going on? I want to tell you, so thankful for your letters and for your ministry. He is going to slap you so hard. He doesn't need your homage. That's the Lord, man. Have some focus. You don't take your eyes off of God, especially not in his presence. And yet that's precisely what they're doing here. Why? Because the creatures of heaven understand that the Lamb's worth is best understood, not simply by paying homage or paying respects or in having an honoring of his work or nice complimentary phrases given to him, but in full-throated worship. And why? Because this lamb is worthy of it. Because of what he has done. He has shown himself worthy, being faithful to his calling, being led to the slaughter, and yet resurrected again. This lamb brings hope to the hopeless, strength to the weak, protection to the vulnerable, peace to the troubled, joy to the grieved, justice to the wronged. It brings meaning to the lost, love to the forgotten, and forgiveness to the sinner. Is he worthy? Is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is he honestly and truly worthy of all of your heart and devotion, soul, mind, and strength? Is he worthy of your devotion and your love? Is he worthy of every day, week, month, and year of your life? Is he worthy of your death? Is he worthy of your children, of your parents, of your loved ones? Is he worthy of your sacrifice, your pain, your tears, your sufferings, and your sorrows? Is he worthy of all power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing? Is he worthy of those things? Yes. Yes, he is. For he who is the living one has become dead, and yet behold, he is alive forevermore. He has risen. He has risen indeed. Let us pray. Our gracious Lord Jesus, you are indeed worthy of all things, for you have done mighty works for your people. You have saved us, securing for us great and beautiful promises forever. Therefore, what else is there to do but worship you? What else have we to do but to fall down before you, proclaiming your worth to the world? Let this be the center of our lives, to give you honor and glory in all we do. We pray this in your matchless name, for our good and most certainly for your glory. Amen.